Please open your Bibles to John chapter 9. And while you do, I want to ask you to consider a question how you might answer it. Why did Jesus come into this world? Why did Jesus come to earth? What might be some biblical answers you might give if I said to you, hey, why, why did Jesus come? And the reality is, biblically, you could make a number of answers. As far as we can tell, one of the earliest church confessions of faith or creedal statements is found in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Orthodox, biblical, true statement. In John's gospel, Jesus has referenced why he came a number of times. In chapter 543, Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name. In 638 to 39, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came. You could say, why did Jesus come down from heaven? To do his Father's will. But then he makes it clear what that will is. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it on the last day. In John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to die. He came to the hour of the cross. John 18, being questioned by Pilate, Are you king? Jesus answered, You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Why did Jesus come? He came to bear witness to the truth. That's a biblical and orthodox statement as well. What I'm getting at is there are multiple reasons Jesus came to earth. And probably the most beautiful and wonderful for us is he came to save sinners like you and I, of whom I'm foremost. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Our morning's text this morning focuses on a different answer you might give but equally true and biblical. And so we're going to consider Jesus' stated purpose in John 9. Our text this morning, the chunk of the text, and we're looking at a chapter and a half chunk, what I'm arguing is one unit. We're at the pivot. We're at the hinge. The blind man has been healed, interrogated, de-synagogued, found by the good shepherd, brought to faith, worships his Messiah. And then Jesus pivots to make this declaration. Join with me in reading John 9. We're just going to read three verses, 39 to 41. For Jesus, let me start over. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. And so we see another answer that we might give. Why did, why did Jesus come into the world? He came for judgment. So let's ask the Lord for wisdom that we might understand what that means this morning. Lord God, Open our eyes to see and our ears to behold the wonders of your word. Help us to understand Jesus' purpose in coming. And what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Both 
to give sight to the blind, but also to blind the sighted. Lord God, I pray that you would not blind any in this room, but that you would give eyes to see. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this, this truly is the pivot point of the passage. Jesus walks by, I'll remind you where we've come. This is a miracle uh, instigated by the disciples, actually. The disciples see the blind man and they say, Rabbi, why, why was he born blind? And as Jesus answers them, he informs them, beginning of chapter one, where this notion of light is first introduced. He says in verse five, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But in verse three, he says, we must, that the works of God must, might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So Jesus begins to work the works of God, and he spits on the ground, puts the mud in the man's eyes, tells him to go wash. And then Jesus leaves the stage, and the man goes, and he comes back seeing, and he's questioned four times, or there's four sets of questioning. One is for his parents. And, and the people are amazed. The Pharisees are confounded. No miracle like this has ever been done, ever recorded. And so the constant question is, how, how, how did he do it? They don't like the answers they get. They don't even think this is the same man until the parents insist, no, this is our son. We don't know how he was healed. We don't know who healed him, but we do know he was our son. We do know he was born blind. And then when the man refuses to, to condemn Jesus, but rather defends him, they're so infuriated, they cast him out. And then last time we studied this, we saw Jesus found him. I love this. I love this. Jesus, who has not been absent from the text, the entire text has been about him. What do you say about him? What do you say about him? What do you say? But he hasn't been doing anything. Um, rather, he's been talked about and discussed. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And then it may seem strange to you what Jesus says next. This is a beautiful picture. It's why I singled out those few verses. A beautiful picture of Jesus bringing this man to faith. Jesus leading this man to a work. He's been kicked out of the synagogue, but that doesn't, that doesn't bother him. He'll have a worship service in the street as he worships his Messiah. Is he excluded from the worship life of the community? No, he is not. Jesus is there and he is worshiping him. For truly the hour is coming and now is when it won't be on this mountain or on that mountain. But the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. So then how do you go from this wonderful, beautiful picture, this lost sheep being brought in, to Jesus' denunciation and declaring his, his delight, his purpose in judgment? I mean, this may seem strange. Everything else we saw, he came to bear witness to the truth. He came to die on the cross. He came to save sinners. He came, he says here, unambiguously for judgment. The gospels also have similar statements. I came for judgment and would that it were here. I came to bring a sword, Jesus can say elsewhere. How do, how do, we, how do we fit this in? How do we understand this? What are we to make of this? Let me suggest to you that the flow, and we'll, we'll get into this next week, God willing, is that Jesus has 
set up, instigated this moment to allow the would-be religious leaders, what he will call hirelings in a few verses, the would-be shepherds of Israel, to show their care for the flock. Let's see what type of shepherding they give. Let's see what type of care they give to the flock. And what they do is harass, threaten, and ultimately cast out this man. And then we see the good shepherd show up. And the good shepherd cares for the flock and he finds the lost sheep and he brings them into the fold. And then he pronounces his judgment. And then starting in chapter 10, verse 1, he lays into the false shepherds contrasting himself as the good shepherd. Look, look at, just read right into 10.1. Truly, truly, I say to you, the you he's speaking to are the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees asked the question in chapter 9, verse 40. Some Pharisees near him heard these things. And we know in, chapter, in verse 6 of chapter 10, he's still speaking to them. This figure of speech, Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So he's continuing. This is why I don't like this chapter division. He's continuing to talk to them, the Pharisees. Truly, truly, I say to you, Pharisees, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. How, how did these guys attain their shepherding role? By what mosaic institution were they made shepherds? No, these are self-appointed leaders and gatekeepers. They climbed over the wall. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and call his own name. He leads his sheep. He leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they, do not, for they know his voice. A stranger will not follow. They will flee from him. So do not know the voice of strangers, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand because he was say, what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And he goes on and he contrasts with the hirelings who, when danger comes, flee. No, the pivot here is after he finishes bringing the sheep into the fold, we begin to see some of his anger and ire and judgment on the shepherds. The self-appointed shepherds. Next week, we'll look at the Old Testament backdrop to this. But this morning, I just want to look at this purpose statement. Jesus gives us, in these three verses, a purpose statement. And then Pharisees who overhear the purpose statement ask a clarifying question, and Jesus clarifies. It's really two points. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth is point one. And point two, the Pharisees' guilt in claiming that they see. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth and the Pharisees' guilt in claiming that they see. So we're just going to walk through this and pay attention as our Lord informs us what his purpose in coming is. What his purpose in coming is. And you can look at it in threefold. Really, it's, it's, it's twofold. He says, for judgment he came into this world. And then he explains what he means. What type of judgment? That those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. But we're going to look at it in three points. Even though, really, the, the giving of sight and the blinding is explaining the judgment. So first, why did Jesus come? To sort, to sort. And the first thing we got to deal with is this text does not conflict with John 3, 17 or 12, 47. I actually had a a sharp-eyed person ask me this in an ABF. And, And there seems to be an apparent conflict with what Jesus says here. I came for judgment and what is said in John chapter 3. Turn to John 3. 317. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Or I can read to you what he says in John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So is there some conflict? Jesus here says he came for judgment. He says, the Father didn't send me to condemn the world. And in chapter 12, he says, I didn't come to judge the world. So is there any conflict? And no, there's not. But I just want to address this right up front. I'll read quickly what D.A. Carson says about this. He acknowledges that formally, the entire clause for judgment, I've come into this world, stands in contradiction with 3.17. Formally. I mean, just words as they're written. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, which is the same word family as to judge the world. The charge, however, is superficial. Even 3.17 is immediately followed by 18 to 21. We'll look at that in a second. With its contrast between darkness and light and its implicit threat of judgment. Jesus' point in 939 is not that the very purpose of his coming was to condemn, not even simply to divide the human race. He came to save, not condemn. But saving some entails condemning others. In that derivative sense, Jesus has indeed come for judgment. And then he quotes Bultmann. This is the paradox of the revelation, that in order to bring grace, it must also give offense, and so can turn to judgment. In order to be grace, it must uncover sin. But he, wins, uh, but he who resists this blinds himself to his sin, and so through the revelation of sin for the first time becomes definitive. Or maybe, maybe another way of thinking about it is this. When you go get a, a scan, CAT scan, CT scan, you get a biopsy. What comes back is in form a judgment. It, it reveals what is the case. Am I sick? Is something wrong? And the scan and the test results give a judgment. They didn't make you sick or healthy, if you're healthy. But there's a, there's a clarity that happens when you get the results back. What, what was ambiguous before is now clear. Simply put, that's what light does. If we closed all the blinds in here and we turned the lights off and you walked in here, you might have a hard time distinguishing. Is that Nile? Is that a chair? Is that a person? Is that a book on the floor? You turn the lights on, what happens? Clarity. But also of necessity, division. In fact, go to three, chapter 3 if you're there, of John. We'll pick it up just in verse 16 and read through 21. It's clear in John's mind, Jesus coming not to condemn but to save by no means is in conflict with the notion that as a consequence of his coming to save, there is a sorting, a sifting and a sorting of people so that it becomes clear where they're at, whose team they're on. 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. I, I, I thought he wasn't sent to condemn. No, but by virtue of inviting people to believe, those who refuse to believe indicate their condemnation. Those who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. And the words being used the way I'm suggesting it's being used in chapter 9. This is the result. This is the consequence. This is the state of affairs that results. 
because light's come into the world, because Jesus has come to seek and save the lost, because God sent his son not to judge the world, but to save the world. But those who reject that saving are condemned already. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So now we've got a slightly different metaphor. You turn on the lights in a room and the cockroaches scurry. The, no, right? They hate the light. Get me out of the light. And so by turning on the light, the cockroaches identify themselves and scatter. Those who hate the light have to move. They have to either get away from the light or become hostile to the light. That's what we see men do who reject Jesus. They either want to distance themselves from him, like the, the Greek speakers in the Decapolis. Can you please go away from here? You're killing our, our swine herds. Please leave. Or the Pharisees who will nail him to a tree to deal with the problem. It's forcing the issue. We hate the light. We hate the light. And that becomes clear. Even as others come to the light, there's a sorting that is a result of the light coming into the world. And Jesus says that's absolutely part of his purpose. So to sort. So first, this does not conflict with John three seventeen or twelve forty seven, where I think the point there is Jesus did not come into the world fundamentally to damn the world. He will judge the world later. We've learned in chapter 5, all judgment's been given to the Son. He will judge in that sense as a judge presiding over a court, condemning and acquitting. He will do that. He didn't come to do that here. But his coming as light reveals the state of affairs. There's a judgment. There's a clarity. There's a sorting and a sifting that occurs. Jesus' light, point two, therefore, reveals and divides. Jesus' light reveals and divides. It makes things clear. It, it identifies who's playing for what team. And it forces people to come to choices and make distinctions. I mean, have you noticed even in our chapter, in chapter 9, there were different sects of the Pharisees. Some were saying, this man's evil. Some are saying, well, can a can a demon-possessed man cast out the, uh, not cast out, can a demon-possessed man cure the blind? There's some division in the Pharisees. By the end of the man who was blind healed speaking in favor of Jesus, they're solidified into a group. They, they, they unify around their opposition to Jesus. Look, look back in chapter 9. As they, as they question the man who was born blind. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. The Pharisees again asked, how had he received his sight? And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? See, there's, there's a lack of unity in the Pharisees. But they're going to be quite unified by the end of this chapter. No, the light has coalesced them into a group. It, it's sorting them out. Light or heat can soften and melt or it can harden. And that's where Jesus is going to go to at the end of this passage. So that's the sense in which he's come for judgment. He's come to make it clear. He's come so that there'll be no ambiguity about where men stand before God. 
and his light. Jesus' light reveals and divides. Point three, and this is important. This sifting is according to God's purpose. This sifting is according to God's purpose. And I say that because we rightly value peace. It's a good thing to value peace. But the Bible condemns a peace that comes at the, the con- as a consequence of compromise. Uh, Jeremiah condemns those who say peace, peace, where there is no peace. And, and what I mean is I know in families and in homes and in relationships, there are situations and times where we sense, you sense something's not right. And for the sake of peace, we don't press the issue. We don't bring it into the light. And so children who probably didn't believe in the home come out in their apostasy at college because we just wanted to have peace at home. There was a, it is good for things to be revealed. It is good for an unbelieving spouse to be identified as an unbelieving spouse. It is good for people who have conflict to make it clear that's where we're at. It, it is part of God's purpose. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. In the first instance, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So let me, let me put a bow on what I'm saying. We, we should not be quarrelsome people. We should not be argumentative people. But we should be people who prize the truth. And we, you, I get this in counseling all the time. It is far better to know what's really going on, even if what really is going on is ugly and wicked and corrupt. Now we know what we're dealing with. Then it is to allow it to stay covered. Think of a room in your home where you suspect there may be that, that deadly black mold growing. And you just never open the door to check and see. Or people who have some strange lump, but they're never going to get a scan because they're afraid of what the results might be. We, we can recognize the folly in that. Jesus is loving the Pharisees by revealing their unbelief. It's not that Jesus is sometimes loving and sometimes he's confrontational. Jesus is loving the Pharisees by exposing their unbelief. They're in a closer situation to be saved, recognizing they're his enemies, than they are thinking, oh, he's okay, which is where they start in chapter three. They start in chapter three, well, we know you're from God, you do signs. And Jesus is loving them as he reveals with his light the true state, no, you hate me. You hate the works I do, you hate my father, his word is not abiding in you. You're not my sheep. Those are words that are kind insofar as they help get them to truth. So, Jesus came for the sorting and for judgment. And this type of sorting and judgment is good. Doesn't mean all conflict is good. But it also means just because there's conflict doesn't mean something wrong has happened. Sometimes it's necessary for these things to become clear. And sometimes we avoid being clear for fear of conflict. Okay. He came to sort. Second, he came to save. He came to save that those who do not see may see. I'll speak quickly here because that's largely what we've been focusing on for most of this chapter so far. This man born blind is a picture of that precisely that those who do not see may see. Um, And it becomes clear that his reception of physical sight is meant to be a parallel and a picture of his reception of spiritual insight, which is to say 
Those who recognize their blindness receive sight. That becomes clear as this goes on through verse 41. As Jesus makes it clear, look, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. This man recognizes what he doesn't know. In contrast to the Pharisees who are constantly telling him what they know. We know Moses is from God. We know this man's a sinner. This man is recognizing, Lord, who is he? I don't know. He recognizes his blindness, and he receives his sight. Like the woman at the well. And what it means that those who don't see, see, means that they see, love, and walk in the light. This is just rehashing what we read earlier in Isaiah, but in Isaiah chapter um, 9, is it 9? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 9, we read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them light has shone. To to see is to behold Christ rightly and then to be in the light. that's, That's a picture of salvation. Listen to how John describes it in this language in 1 John. 1 John 1, 5 to 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he he gives us eyes that we might see, and seeing the light is then the precursor to entering into the light and into fellowship with him, which is why Jesus can speak about the life, the, the light that is life. The light that is life. John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, Jesus came to save. For those who are not self-righteous and proud, but can recognize their lost situation, recognize their helpless situation, recognize their blindness, he opens their eyes to see and to love and to walk in the light, which is another way of saying that they might have eternal life, that they might have eternal life, that they might share in God's light. Quickly, there. So let's get then to point C. So he came to sort, sort things out. Some who are blind will see And those who see become blind. Point C here, to set. To set. And here I'm thinking of like something setting, like like an epoxy or a resin that sets or has to cure concrete sets. Something that was once malleable becomes hardened in place. That's, That's the idea I have with set, to set. Those who may see may become blind. And this can be strange for us, that Jesus would come to blind And again, it's unambiguously part of Jesus' mission. Remember in Luke, when he said, Father, I I rejoice, I praise you. The 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 12 come back. He says, Father, I I praise you for you have revealed these things to infants and hidden them from the wise. You're praising God for hiding truth? Jesus did. He absolutely did. What does this mean? What do we make of this? Well, um, first, we get clarity here. That this blindness is for those who insist that they can see will be blinded. Jesus makes that clear. This this sight, it's not that they really do see, but rather they claim they see. That, that, That becomes clarified in the next verses. 
In reality, both are blind. Both come into this world. We all come into this world dead in our sins. We all come into this world blind. We all come into this world unseeing spiritually. And Jesus has come that those who will recognize that, those who will cry out for help, will be saved. And that those who assist, no, I'm fine just as I am. I don't need any help. They're the ones who get blinded. They're the ones who get hardened into position. Those who insist that they see will be blinded. Now here, point two, Jesus is making a reference to the judgment of Isaiah 6.10. We'll go there in a second, but let me make that clear. It's, it's hinted at here. I think it's clearly here, but it, go to chapter 12 where it's, it's, it's unambiguous. Chapter 12, closing out Jesus' public ministry. 12.36, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So turn, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. So when Jesus talks about blinding, I'm suggesting this is, this is a reference to Isaiah 6. Clearly Isaiah 6 is being quoted in chapter 12. And Isaiah chapter 6 is a well-known passage. If you know any passages in Isaiah, I'm guessing this is probably one of them. We'll just pick it up in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Pause for a moment. The commentary John gives in his gospel is Isaiah wrote these things because he saw him and the him is Jesus. Which member of the Trinity is Isaiah looking at here? Jesus, or the Son, who would be named Jesus, probably be more accurate. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes I have seen the king. The Lord of hosts, Isaiah saw Jesus, John writes. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, I've been to com- you know, pastoral commissioning services, and they like to quote this passage, and they usually stop here. Isaiah is going to be commissioned to be a herald, to preach a message. Look at the message he's to preach. Keep on hearing, 
but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. Which is to say, till the judgment comes, till, till, till first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom is taken away into captivity. So that is what is being referenced in blinding. What are we to make of this? And if we're honest, we recognize it, it might look to us cruel, uncaring, maybe even capricious. It is none of these things. But let's recognize we might be tempted to think this. Let me help us work through this. We've worked through this when we were in Luke, so I'll do it a little more quickly this morning. But here's, here's the rationale that we need to pick up upon. This language that you're seeing here, which I'll call spiritual sensory deprivation, having eyes that don't see, having ears that don't hear, having a dull, stubborn, or stony heart, or unfeeling heart. This is, this is a language that is used consistently, not just of these people, but of something else. And what it's used of most commonly is of the idols of the peoples. Because, of course, what contrasts the idols of the nations with the living God is this idol has a mouth painted on it. But does the idol talk? No. The idol has eyes drawn on it. It doesn't see. It's got a set of ears. You can point to them, but it doesn't hear. It has the appearance of sight, hearing, and speech, and it does none of those things. That's one of the ways the idol is mocked. Turn to Isaiah 44. I'll show you. This, this is an important point because really it's a judgment. This blinding is a judgment. It's not capricious. It's not arbitrary. Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in, they do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know what they, that, uh, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all its companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks, bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat and he roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. 
And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals and roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The ultimate irony that this piece of wood required the work of man, the reign of God, and much strenuous labor to be fashioned into something that resembles a man. And the leftovers from that same piece of wood, you can bake your bread on, and you can turn to the piece of wood and say, you're my God, you made me, deliver me. The folly of it. But even here we see that he has shut their eyes and their hearts. Turn, turn to Psalm 115, and then I will be done with this point. But here's the idea. God mocks the idols of the nations because they are supremely impotent. They cannot speak. They cannot hear. They cannot see. They cannot act. They cannot save or deliver. No matter how much they look like they can. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Mouths, but do not speak. That is what separates the living God who is from all the idols of the people's. Psalm 115 draws out this point and then makes the connection between the idols and the worshipers. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is supremely potent. He is omnipotent. He does all all that he wants to do. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. All of that in contrast to verse three, our God who is in the heavens, who accomplishes, he does all that he pleases. If he wants to talk, he talks. If he wants to see, he sees. Verse eight, those who make them become like them. So do all who put their trust in them. In that context, then, can you make sense of what is being communicated when God says to Isaiah, go tell them, seeing you don't see, hearing you don't hear. You are in danger. You are already becoming, he's saying to Israel, like the idols you worship. You're starting to resemble them. You're starting to look like them. So all of that language, and all through Jesus' ministry, let, him, let he who has eyes to see, see. Let he who has ears to hear, hear. He's picking up on this. You will be conformed to the image of what you worship. You will resemble what you will, what you revere. You will become what you behold. You will be conformed to the image of your God. You will, one way or the other. 
And so all of this seeing but don't see blinding their eyes is a judgment. It's not capricious. It's not arbitrary. It's a judgment on idols and idolaters. And so when people reject the light, when people, here's maybe another way of making the metaphor, when people want to close their eyes long enough so that they can't and won't see, eventually their eyes might get stuck that way. When, when I was a kid, I used to hear, if you cross your eyes too much, they'll stay that way. Well, the, the, the biblical concept is if you turn your eyes and, bl- and close your eyes from seeing what is true and right, eventually you may not be able to open them. If you stick your fingers in your ears long enough, you may not be able to pull them out. That's the judgment. That's what the light does. And we get that as well. When you've been in the dark for a long time and the light comes on, what do you do? You, you, you cover your face, hands with your eyes. Now, for some people, they do that as their eyes accustomed to the light. For others, the hand never moves away. I don't want to see the light. And that's precisely what the Pharisees are doing. As more and more light is shown, more and more miracles, more and more clarity about who Jesus is. As he speaks and does works that testify, the Father testifies, his teaching testifies, John the Baptist testifies, more and more and more light, they become hardened and hardened more and more because they worship something else. They have a different God. Jesus came that those who are blind might see, but he also came... So that those who will not see, those who will not turn, might be finally set and hardened into that position. That's the judgment of Isaiah. That is also a consequence of what Jesus does. Point three, they have become like their idols. There's some other references there you can see to make this point. I've got to move very quickly. Point two. The Pharisees' guilt in claiming that they see. I I belabor that because I think if we understand that, then what Jesus says next to the Pharisees will be clear and we can make sense of and we can move through somewhat quickly. So the Pharisees are standing by. This presumably took place out of doors, in a street, in a marketplace, wherever Jesus found this man who was born blind and he's talking to him, the Pharisees are able to overhear. They hear this statement of his purpose. They hear this statement of why he came. And they're interested in only one thing. Are we blind? And they're not asking sincerely. They're not asking, as it were, well, well, wait a second, are you saying saying I'm blind? No, they're offended. They won't won't be dissed, pardon the vernacular, by the man born blind. Would you teach us? You were born in utter sin. And they're certainly not going to be disparaged by this heretical teacher who works on the Sabbath. Are you saying we're blind? In other words, they're not concerned with Jesus' sign. This is not an inquiry into whether or not this man is from God, whether or not this sign is legitimate or what it means. It's simply a concern over their honor. They're not concerned with Jesus' sign. A notable, an unprecedented miracle has been done among them. And the only thing they're interested in, overhearing Jesus speak, watching this man worship him, hearing Jesus say, I speak to you in the Son of Man, all of that content, what's the part they pick up on? What's the part they're interested in? Wait, wait a second, are you, are you talking trash about us? That's their concern, their honor. Whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second, were you insulting us? Jesus' answer, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. And I think Jesus means that relatively. Um, go, go to chapter 15 of John where he says something very similar that I think helps make sense of this. 
or helps clarify what he's, what he's getting at here. John 15. Pick it up in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant or slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Now, when Jesus says they have no guilt, that's got to be relative. The Old Testament makes it clear everyone is sinful. It's not these are sinless people. It's the relative guilt of you wouldn't be guilty of the supreme wickedness and rebellion of casting off and chanting, kill, kill, crucify the Son of God. Had Jesus not come, no one would be able to be guilty of that type of blasphemy, right? You can't curse the Son of Man if there is no Son of Man to curse. You can't reject the Savior if there is no Savior. By coming and offering himself, it's now possible for people to refuse. It's now possible for people to throw rocks and scorn. And that's the, the relative sense in which he speaks of their sinlessness. If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. So point one it means we need to recognize your true condition and cry out for illumination. Jesus has already said in John seven seventeen, if anyone's will is to do the will of him who sent me, he will know whether this teaching is from God. Which is to say, any sincere, honest inquiry into who Jesus is will be honored by God. John 7, 17, here's Jesus' promise. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. In other words, from a right perspective, asking the question, is Jesus indeed the spokesperson for God? Is Jesus indeed the one sent by God, given a message to testify to? If you're sincere in asking, that's a great question to ask. Ask. And Jesus promises the one who says that because I, I want to know, because I want to do what pleases God. You'll know. God promises you'll know. But for people who already know plenty and want to come up with excuses and justifications, they're, they're going to they're gonna be in for trouble. They're going to be blinded. Recognize your true condition. Cry out for illumination. Which gets to point to, you are not responsible for what you do not have. In Romans, my, my small group's going through Romans, Paul has just said that when Gentiles, this is where we're studying in Romans chapter 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law, which is to say nobody who didn't receive the Bible is going to be judged by what the Bible says. Let me say that again. If, if you're in a people group, people ask me, what about people in Papua New Guinea? If, if you have never come in contact with Scripture you will not be judged by Scripture. God will not judge people for what they did not know. Now, before you say, now hold on a sec, does that mean? No, because Paul's whole point in Romans is people already know plenty through natural revelation. 
Psalm 19, day into day pours forth speech, night into night reveals knowledge. There is no language, there is no tongue where their voice is not heard. Or as Paul says in Romans 1, even though they knew God, because they saw the evidence of God in the created order, they neither thanked him nor honored him. That became futile in their thinking. There are no atheists. Everyone intuitively knows and understands there is a God who made this created order. Many, many people suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But no one's judged for what they didn't know. God's judgment is righteous. And so nobody is going to be judged as though people who never had Scripture are going to say, in Leviticus here it says that you're... No. But Paul makes it clear that the conscience and the knowledge of right and wrong is sufficient to condemn all. God can simply say to the the person in a far-off place who never had Scripture, did you do the good you knew to do? Was there ever a time your conscience condemned you? Yes, okay, you're guilty. Did you honor and give thanks to the gods you knew existed? No, then you're guilty. And so Paul comes out of chapter two into chapter three making it clear, even though that is the case, even though those without the word of God will not be judged by the word of God, but they'll be judged by what they knew, all will be condemned. So don't, don't misunderstand, but if you've ever wondered, it's not fair. No, God's judgment is only according to what a person has, not what he does not have. And if these Pharisees did not claim to know what they knew, they wouldn't be accountable for it. But Jesus is before them, and rather than being honest and even saying, we aren't wise enough to figure this out, help, like the man here who said, who is he? Who is the Son of Man? They, they insist they know things. Okay, well, you're going to be accountable for what you insist you know. All right. You might even get locked in that position. If you were blind, you'd have no guilt at all. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Which is to say, in their pride, they insist that they see, and so there is no hope for them. Proverbs 26.12 says this, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And I've said this before, there is no one too weak, there is no one too sinful, there is no one too small, too broken, to be saved and healed and redeemed by Christ. But sadly, there are far, far too many who are too great, too powerful, too wise, and too strong. Or at least they insist they are. And Jesus is making it clear. This is, this is the gospel and the salvation, the foolishness of God. For those who recognize their weakness, their frailty, their guilt, their sin, there is pardon and forgiveness and grace. Just think back to chapter 4, the woman at the well. The whole village there. This man born blind, this beggar. And yet, in contrast, the people who had the most privilege, the people who read the Torah day in and day out, could probably quote it extensively, who were self-appointed shepherds and teachers, they, precisely because what they claim they know, here's your point two, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. That's what Jesus says in John fifteen twenty. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So as we sing our closing song, and I'll invite the worship team up. Um, we are going to sing it because the lyrics fit so poignantly. I want to draw your attention back to that first purpose of Christ's coming, to give sight to the blind. I trust that most, if not all of us in this room, are those who once were blind, but now you see. 
Give God the glory for that. You didn't make yourself see. You didn't birth yourself. God was gracious to you. And God said, let there be life and light in a dark heart. The veil was removed and you saw. Please stand as we sing Amazing Grace.